Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's been fun for just a number of reasons. Love being with Dr. Aiken. We've emphasized again and again the friendship that is there. Love being with Miss Aiken. Love scaring her, coming up behind her, screaming, listening to her scream like a 15-year-old girl. It's been absolutely great to be with her. Love being with my son, uh, vice president here at Southeastern, and uh, even more, love being with his three sons who happen to be my grandchildren. And my 10 grandchildren have really made my children irrelevant in life. And I love, I love seeing all of those. Uh, Ryan Hutchison, I know you're around here somewhere. And uh, Executive Vice President, happy birthday today. I think uh, he said it was 75 or something of that nature uh, for whatever year that it was. As I go into these personal things, I just, just, I don't know why this came to mind. I think it just happened to be that I'm sitting over here with Art and kind of remembering family life and things like that. Art is a big University of Kentucky guy. He has two degrees from University of Kentucky. Uh, when he and Sarah uh, got married, the Kentucky mascot was actually at their reception. Uh, he, he's weirdly fanatical about Kentucky basketball, not football, because Kentucky football is irrelevant as well. But he is totally fanatical about that. But one time he called us up when he was at college, and um, he said, can y'all come to the game? We said, which game? Football game. Um, an unusual request. And so which game? He said, Ohio. No, no, no. He didn't say Ohio State. He said, Ohio. I said, why would I want to come watch Kentucky play Ohio? I would rather go to a high school football game and see more talent than that. <laughs> and, 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 and Art said, well, and he, he, you, you could tell he was a bit sheepish about it. He said, I've been nominated to be homecoming king. I said, say that again, boy. So I've been nominated to be homecoming king. I said, you're not about to give me some more information I don't want to hear in the context of this, are you? He said, no. Kentucky has a homecoming king and a homecoming queen. I said, well, that's weird. And so my wife, Nellie Joe, said, what's he saying? And I told her, and she said, well, say he'll tell us you'll be there. I said, I haven't looked at the calendar. She goes like this. She's a godly, submissive woman when I listen to her real carefully. So at that very, at that very moment, I said, we'll, we'll, we'll be there. Halftime. Kentucky versus Ohio, one of the worst halves of football I have ever seen in my life. I mean, I would rather go watch Alabama scrimmage than watch that game. It was just absolutely terrible. But it's time, halftime. And here's how they do it. You don't know who's going to be the king and the queen. They announce it, and then the full court goes out, but the president then gives something to the king. I don't know what it is, but, but it's, you know, the, the, the stands are waiting in breathless anticipation to who is going to be their next king 
and queen. I don't know why I'm telling this story publicly. I don't really know if I'm proud of him for it, but it's, this, this, this is what happened. Nellie Jo had her, had her video camera, and she's watching, and she's kind of panning the field and the, the different potential candidates for this, those who are the finalists, queen and king, and they announce the king first. And they say, ladies and gentlemen, your University of Kentucky Wildcat homecoming king is. And then there was this pregnant pause. And then they announce, Art Rayner. I wish you could see the video. No, no, even more than that, I wish you could hear the video. The video is in Nellie Joe's hands, and you can't hear anything but, And that was me. You should have heard her. (laughs) I love being here. I love being with the Aikens. I love being with the students, faculty, administration. But it's been a special treat to be here with my family and to see the three grandsons and to see their lesser parents during this time. I love being here because I'm talking about things that are near and dear to my heart. We call this a lecture series, which has all kinds of connotations of boredom, and it may end up being that way. But two days ago, I lectured and somewhat preached on change, using the text from Deuteronomy 34 and Joshua 1 with a simple title, Moses is Dead, especially focusing on Joshua 1 where Joshua announces to the people of Israel, Moses, my servant, is dead. And as indicated two days ago, some of the most incredulous words that you'll ever see in Scripture, because if you look back in the preceding chapter of Deuteronomy 34, they had been mourning Moses for 30 days. And why would Joshua announce that Moses, my servant, is dead? He was preparing them not to dishonor the past, but to move from the past into the future. It was time to go into that promised land. It was time to leave the wilderness. It was time to claim that which God had given them. I deal with many, many pastors and church staff through a venue of different venues where they're connected to me every single day, I am interacting with pastors and other leaders who serve in the local church. I know their dreams, I know their hurts, I know their pains. I know their desires, I know their struggles. And I absolutely love pastors and those who serve in the local church. But we're at one of those times, and I've referred to it with this long word, a paradigmatic moment, a shift that is taking place in the local church. And when I say a shift that is taking place in the local church, I am obviously not referring to anything that is constant and never changing. The Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, prayer, the primacy of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, the centrality of doctrine, those are the things that we know will not change. But in the midst of the certainties that we have, there are a lot of things that are changing. And as I hear from pastors and church staff, those are the areas 
where they're asking are either crying, help, help. I want us to talk, I want to talk to you this morning about, and I don't like this phrase and I will admit it, but I will clarify it later, the successful pastor in 2020. Just looking three and a half years forward because change is so rapid. And you will see that when I'm talking about the successful pastor, I'm using that nomenclature because it is more familiar. My desire is really to call him the faithful pastor because success has secular connotations to it. But oftentimes when we talk about faithful pastors, we are not talking about those men who are making it to the other side of change. So I will refer to the successful pastor with the understanding that success is measured not in human metrics, but in faithfulness to God. My background is varied. I came from the business world before I was called to vocational ministry. As I went to seminary and stayed on campus for six years to get two degrees at Southern Seminary, I began to pastor and pastor two churches while in seminary, two churches out of seminary before I became dean of the Billy Graham School at Southern. It was in those four churches that even though it's been many, many years ago that I learned so much about how pastors respond, feel, react, think, because I was one of them. And even though times have changed dramatically, there are still some things that I went through that pastors and church staff are going through today. I remember so much my first church. I often refer to it as the Church of First Merle. That wasn't the name of it, but Merle was the search committee. Merle was the deacon body. Merle's wife, Ruby, was the pianist. Merle, we would call him a worship leader today, but he was then called the song leader. It was a small church, not overwhelming. As a matter of fact, the vote to call me was six to one. Now think about that for a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Seven people in the flipping church, and I can't get a unanimous vote. (laughs) It was that church that I had my first baptism, a young lady by the name of Bert. That's a story into itself because I'm not going to give the illustration, but just simply to say she bit me during the baptism because she had hydrophobia. I even had suggested to her when I found out she had hydrophobia that she might want to consider becoming a Presbyterian, but (laughs) she said she wanted to go through biblical baptism, and so I did. By the way, when I bit her, I never was able to get her face all in the water. I don't believe in baptismal regeneration, but if you did, when you go to heaven, you'll see Bert because she has a blank face, if that was your doctrinal belief. (laughs) Never could get that other part under. Pressed real hard, pressed real hard, but she was much stronger than I am. I remember discipling my first convert uh, that I discipled. Uh, Bert was the first convert, and his name was Steve. Steve actually said, I want you to go with me to talk to some of my friends. And I said, sure. He said, you know, what are we going to talk about? Just what you talked about to me, Jesus. We went to a bar. That's where his friends were. You know, I was looking around, you know, see who might be watching me. But I was able to share the gospel along with Steve and to see two other men become believers in Christ. 
I remember my first conflict in the church. It happened well into my ministry about the seventh or eighth day. And it was with the pianist, the wife of Merle, Ruby. I don't even remember what it was about, but I know that she was perpetual conflict for me. I should have never, ever called her Jezebel. That was something that I do not (laughs) recommend. I had done one funeral prior to becoming a pastor, but my first funeral as a pastor was Martha. All of these have stories attached to them, real stories. Martha's was a doozy. I did not know Martha. She was, you know, like many Southern Baptists. She was on the roll but never attended and did not even know she was on the roll till she was dead. And um, had not really done a funeral other than speaking at my father's funeral. And I read, a, I believe, a funeral book by Jim Henry. And I, I'm just one of these guys that when I read something, I, I want to take it seriously. I really want to follow the instructions, if you will. And he said, when you're new to a town and you're about to do a funeral, ask the funeral directors, what are some of the customs in the community so that you can become familiar with them? So I walked in for the first funeral and uh, there were three rather rotund funeral directors there. And, and, uh, and I said, uh, look, I'm new to town. First mistake. I said, uh, I've really never done a funeral before. Second mistake. And I've also said, I also said, I understand there might be some unique community traditions here. Can you share them with me? Third mistake. They looked at me and they said, you're new? First funeral? Yes. We can help. I said, tell me about it. They said, look, we have a tradition here in the southern Indiana area that after you preach the message and before you go speak to the family, you're to turn around to the open casket and kiss the deceased. (laughs) Martha was right behind me. The deceased, that is. I said, really? They said, really? As serious as they could be. I preached the message turned around there was Martha first time I'd ever really spent any time with Martha and I turned around and kissed the deceased I turned around this way and the family was horrified their mouths were agape like that And three fat funeral directors were rolling in the back like this. I have learned so much the hard way. Whether I have been a dean or a pastor or CEO of Lifeway, I've often learned through my mistakes. But I am so joyful that we have the Word of God to guide us through. And even though I'm talking about the successful pastor of just a few years from now, the faithful pastor, if you will, the Word of God is unchanging. And it speaks to us in 2017 and 2020, just as it did in the 30s AD. 
I want you to follow along, if you will, in a passage that is so familiar to pastors, and it's 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And though you've heard this passage preached, taught, and perhaps you have done it yourselves, I want to spend a little time in the context of a lecture focusing upon one part of it, even though there are other parts that may have greater import. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul writing to his protege, Timothy says these words in the inspired and errant word of God. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and dead, and because of his appearing and the kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience in teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship, do the work of the evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Verses 1 through 4 are paramount. When exegetes spend the majority of their time on those first four verses in this pericope, they are doing well and right because these are the essential issues. Preach the word, be true to doctrine. Do not stray into false teaching. Do not even tolerate false teaching. That is foundational. And of that, far better expositors have dealt with this than I ever could. It's verse 5 for a moment, though, that I would direct your attention. After this foundational presentation of that which is most important... Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, not that he wasn't personal in the first four verses, but he gets deeply personal. And not that he didn't recognize that he was talking to Timothy prior to this one sentence, one verse, but now you can almost anticipate the pause because it's not only after these magnificent mandates, it is right before Paul tells Timothy, I'm about to die. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure is close. They're sandwiched between those paramount imperatives, the most, some of the most important things a pastor can hear, and then Paul pouring out his heart about pouring out his life. Verse 5. But as for you, I know that there are many times that when I was raising my three sons that we would talk and, and we would, I'd, I'd just give them general exhortation, but there would be times when I would, I would get them close and look them in the face, and I probably didn't use these words, but the essence would be the same. But as for you, Art, as for you, Sam, as for you, Jess, hear this. And the remarkable thing about what is about to follow is what Paul says in verse 5, if not heeded, becomes the primary reasons that pastors 
lose their jobs, and sometimes even fall out of ministry. But as for you, what does he say? Exercise self-control. The word used here, the thought here is to be free from intoxicants, literally. In the context, it means to be stable and unwavering. Today, if we were to use the modern vernacular of it, we would call it emotional intelligence. We call it emotional health. And for many pastors, and indeed others who serve on church staff, one of the primary reasons that they do not make it in that church is because their emotional intelligence, their relational skills are so sorely lacking. I know I've been there, done that. In many contexts, especially as a local church pastor, I manifested greatly my dominant spiritual gift, ignorance. I would exercise it again and again and again. And oftentimes I did not have that emotional intelligence, those relational things. He says, but as for you, self-control and everything, stable and unwavering. And then he says, endure hardship. Boom. Paul, Paul knew hardship. There are many passages that we can look at to look at the travails that Paul experienced, but maybe the better known is uh, chapter 11 of Second Corinthians. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. Chapter 11, 2 Corinthians, verse 23. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. And then he pauses. Not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me and my concern for all the churches. Paul, in the purest sense, may have been more itinerant than a local church pastor, but he knew. And his resume of hardships was longer than most of us could ever imagine. But at the conclusion of this pericope, he says, not to mention other things, There's the daily pressure of my concern for the churches. Another major reason that pastors are walking away from local church life is is crisis and conflict. And though it would be ludicrous to presume that most of us have had the hardships that Paul experienced, he did say in the conclusion of all of his, I have the daily concern for the church. Conflict is inevitable. Criticism is a part of leadership, particularly 
pastoral leadership. Hardship is what will happen in every church we serve to some degree. Every pastor, every person who serves in the church context will experience such pains and such trials. I do not say that to discourage if you're not already there. I do not say to dissuade you if you're serving in that position now. I simply say it as a reality. But it is those times when I am reminded of what Christ did for me that I put in perspective all the naysayers, all the critics, all the haters, all of the problems. Because my Jesus loved me despite me. He loved me unconditionally. And by his grace and the shedding of his blood, he died for me. I will never love the church as he loves the church. But that is the example I am to follow. I am to love those who are my comrades in ministry. I am to love those who walk alongside me as encouragers. I am to love those who tell me that the message was wonderful. I'm to love those who criticize me. I'm to love those who hate me. I was doing a, Jonathan and I were doing a podcast interview yesterday with Andy, and Andy, my mind's gone blank, Davis, Andy Davis, pastor of First Baptist Durham here in town. And uh, Andy's been at his church for almost 20 years now. And one of the questions that I asked him, I said, going through a revitalization like you went through at First Durham, what were some of the greatest challenges? And he didn't hesitate. I hope you'll listen to this podcast when it airs in the future. But he said this, having people say they hated me. Or having people look me in the face with body language that connoted the same type of disposition. He said from his mind he had never done anything to engender such hatred. He said, all I tried to do was preach the word faithfully and to stay the course. But they hated me. And he reminded us as we interviewed him that the sacrifice he was making for those who loved him who did not love him, who hated him, was pale compared to what our Jesus has done for us. Pastors who make it to 2020 will understand that they have to connect with people. Whatever Paul would say that is exercise self-control and everything, and that is simply to say we have to connect relationally with others. Endure hardship It just means that that is a fact of life, a reality of serving in ministry. And then he says, do the work of the evangelist. Not the office of the evangelist, but the the one who shares the gospel. The verb and noun form of evangelism is used 130 times in the New Testament. 
But quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, this is one thing that we are seeing not just merely from an anecdotal point of view, but as we ask pastors how they spend their time. Fewer and fewer pastors are making the sharing of the gospel a priority. Local church evangelism is waning in many churches and even dying in others. Not to suggest that the pastor or others on staff are to do the work of the evangelist alone, but to definitely say, resonating with Paul's words here, that if he, the pastor, is not doing the work of the evangelist, how can we expect others to do so in the church? Three primary reasons why pastors are losing their jobs. One is they do not relate well to the members' self-control. Two, they leave because of hardship, sometimes forced out, sometimes going to supposedly greener pastures to get away from the problems of the current church. And three, they have forgotten or neglected to prioritize the sharing of the gospel with people. You know, it's so easy. The enemy of good, the enemy of great is good. And it's really, it is a sin to be good when God has called us to be great. There is not a good commission, there's a great commission. It's not the good commandment, it's the great commandment. And when Paul was speaking in that magnum opus to try to get the church at Corinth to understand what it meant to be a part of the body of Christ in chapter 12, he then follows with chapter 13, often called the love chapter, about being a part of the local church. And he doesn't say one of the good things is love. He says the greatest of these is love. Throughout scripture, we see superlatives to reflect the priority of what we're to do. This is a great commission seminary. Of that, there is no doubt. But you, those of you who've been called to local churches, those of you who've been called to the mission field, you will hear the seductive siren song of doing good instead of great. And your time will not prioritize that which is the priority. It's easier, quote, not to take time to intentionally pray for gospel opportunities. It's easier not to spend time telling people the good news. It's easier not to develop relationships that may require long-term seed sowing. It's easier to let the tyranny of the urgent replace the priority of the Bible. The future pastor... The pastor who is successful, faithful in 2020, yes, will be foundationally built upon 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. But he will not forget verse 5. And he will not forget doing the work of evangelists. Not too long ago, we did a uh, research project on what are the characteristics of long-term pastors. Here are just some of them that came back in our survey. They don't skip a day in prayer in the ministry of the word. 
You know, it wasn't too long in the early church in Jerusalem that that temptation occurred. The Grecian widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And the temptation could have been to say, we have to do everything. We have to fill our calendars. We have to be so incredibly busy. We don't have time to do these other things which are our priorities. But no, the disciples said, we'll turn this ministry over to them, the seven. And Acts 6 verse 4 says what? And we will turn our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Three of those things which disappear quickly in terms of priority in the busy life of a pastor are prayer time, daily Bible reading, and sharing the gospel. And those areas of neglect are object formulas for failure for pastors. Long-term pastors don't skip a day in the prayer and the ministry of the word. They, secondly, they realize that gnats are gnats. I recently did a blog post at TomRainer.com and talked about gnats. I ticked off a lot of people. I didn't mean to. They thought that I was calling people these little insects that bug you all the time. And I guess I kind of was, but I didn't really mean it in a harmful way. And so we got the, the, the blog, that particular blog post, turned into a gnat discussion. You know, how dare you call me a gnat? Well, I really want. Well, then again, maybe if you're talking to me like this, maybe you are. And, you know, there, there was a temptation with many of these comments to say, now I know why your pastor's having trouble. But I did not. I exercise self-control in everything. Another characteristic of long-term pastors, they pray for wisdom. James 1.5 is not a theory. It's a promise that if we pray for wisdom, God will give it to us abundantly. I am so serious when I say I cannot do anything of value without God's wisdom. And when I was a pastor, when I went to seminary to be the dean, now in my present position, my almost daily prayer, I don't want to suggest that I get it every day, My almost daily prayer is, God, give me your wisdom. I can't lead of my own strength and power. And I am blessed to have some people who pray for me, my prayer warriors. And when they're constantly asking me, how can we pray? I may give them specificity of certain items and events, but I always say, please pray for God's wisdom in my life. Another characteristic of the long-term pastor is they dream big because they have a God that they serve that wants them to do according to his strength and power the most that they have been called to do. Another characteristic of long-term pastors, listen to this, they intentionally seek to see the green grass in their own churches. Usually we see the green grass in the other church. But that green grass that we're seeing in the next church that is the solution to all of our problems is another pastor's brown grass. They begin to say, God, focus me in in a Philippians type of way on that which is good and lovely and praiseworthy. Focus my mind on how you are working here. I know that this is not a perfect church because I am not a perfect pastor and we don't have a perfect staff and we don't have perfect people here. But help me to see the green grass where I am. 
Another characteristic of long-term pastors is they keep an outward focus. Many times churches begin to turn inward. Not for a moment do I suggest we shouldn't disciple or, or be involved in ministry or pastoral care, but if we're not constantly pushing the edges to our Jerusalem, we become a church that is stale, stagnant, and ultimately dead. They constantly keep that outward focus before them. This is a characteristic of long-term pastors. They take care of their families. One of the, I think, misconceptions of ministry is the balancing of family and church. Now, that seems like a maybe a, a ludicrous statement for me to make, but allow me to elaborate. As Paul begins to unfold to Timothy the priorities of ministry, and he says very clearly, how can you lead the church unless you are not you cannot lead the church if you're not taking care of your family, First Timothy 3, 5. The pattern here is Paul is saying, this is not a choice of balance. This is a choice of understanding where your first line of ministry is. Your first line of ministry, pastor, in the church is your wife, your children, your family, You are not balancing two different things. You are giving priority to ministry to that and those who are closest to you. That's why Paul would say, take care of your family. It's not choosing the church or family. It's understanding that in the context of ministry, family is first. And as you do ministry, you make certain that you're ministering to them. I mess this up so many times as a pastor. Still do. I messed it up so many times where I would neglect my wife because I was doing things for the church. No. She was a part of the church as well. She should have been my first priority. Too many times my three little boys did not get the ministry and attention of daddy because I rationalized that I had to do something for the church. No, they're a part of the church. They're my first line of ministry in the church. The successful long-term pastor, the faithful pastor of 2020, will have healthy time in the prayer and the word. They will have healthy relationships. They will have healthy ministry with their family. They will be healthy Sharing their faith. And then we cannot neglect Ephesians 4.12. Where pastors and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Have you ever begun to pull that passage apart and to really think about what that means? Many times we like the idea of a mandate more than we like the application of that mandate. What does it mean to equip the saints to do the work of ministry? Well, among other things, it means that you are learning to lead, that you are learning to delegate, that you are learning to equip, that you are learning the organization, which is also the organism. And many times when we look at Ephesians 4.12, we fail to see the leadership and organizational implications that are not only implicit, but I think explicit within this passage. 
And so when pastors don't make it in the church, relational skills, failure to do the work of an evangelist, failure to exercise self-control, failure to stand strong in the midst of hardship, but also failure to be the kind of leader who understands that that organism is also an organization and if we're equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, we better know how that all unfolds. So another reason that they fail is they lack the leadership wisdom that God can give. Again, I would not minimize for one moment the absolute importance of those first four verses of Second Timothy 4. And the very fact that I've gone to verse 5 as the focus of the pericope is not suggesting that they're paramount or more important than the previous fourth. It is not. But it's simply to say that as we look at why pastors are making it, church staff are making it or not making it, most of the reasons can be found in verse 5 and Ephesians 4, verse 12. We are at a time of tumultuous change. There's so many manifestations of it. I've mentioned some in the previous two days. One of them is very simply worship size is getting smaller. The gathered worship moment is going down in size, not necessarily because of attendance decreases, though it could be, but primarily because that's how people are gathering now. The large church, the large worship gathering of just a few years from now will be 300 or 350 And it will be an outlier when you see a worship gathering of 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,000. We're seeing churches remodel their worship center, sanctuaries, smaller to accommodate this new reality, whether they are growing or declining. We're seeing the manifestation of the multi, multi multi-venue, multi-site. We can debate the theological, ecclesiological merits of it, but it is a reality. We're seeing the expectations of a pastor and the staff grow to such levels that to call them unreasonable would be an understatement. We could talk all day about culture shifts and how the world is different in which we are ministering. We're seeing churches close more rapidly than any time in measured history in our nation. We could argue exactly how many, I have estimated, as many as 10,000 every week. Others have said that's too high. But when it is all said and done, a lot of churches are closing. When I wrote my little book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, it seemed to resonate with more people than I ever thought it would. We're seeing things happen that we haven't seen happen in our lifetime. But you know what? We serve the same God, the unchanging God, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the omnipresent God. And that is not going to change. Conclude with this fine illustration, if you will. Not as fun necessarily as a kid being named Homecoming King, which is really weird in itself, but just a little bit more fun. 
I was a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, working on my doctorate at Southern Seminary. I was also working in a bank because the church was not paying me sufficiently to support my family of, at that point, five people. That became one of the greatest blessings that I could imagine. I really began to see, even that many years ago, the advantage of a marketplace pastor. And one of the great relationships that I developed was with my boss, Frank Keener. Frank was incredibly crass and profane, but for some reason he just liked me. And in my church, most days I would be praying this prayer, most days, Lord, give me wisdom to lead this place and allow me according to your will to come in contact with someone with whom I may share the gospel. One day, Frank called me into his office. He was senior vice president of this large bank, and they kind of hired me as a, this uh, part-time consultant to help them make decisions on corporate loans. And he called me into his office. He said, Rainer, so you're a Christian. I said, yeah, most of us at seminary are. Not all of us, but most of us are. <laughs> he said, um, don't Christians tell people about Jesus? Well, they should, Frank. Go to it. Well, okay. So I shared the gospel with him. He said in about six profanity-laced sentences, that's good. I'm not going to give you the profanity that accompanied all that. I said, well, okay. He said, you can do that some other time. And periodically he would come into his office and said, what you learned about Jesus today? Tell me about him. And every time, I would have an opportunity to share the gospel. I was dumbfounded by his openness to hearing, but his lack of receptivity, apparently, of his heart. Ended up, of course, graduating and ended up going to church in St. Petersburg. And kind of forgot all about Frank until three years ago. Now, get the picture. I left Frank in his workplace in 1986. And it wasn't until 2014 that I heard from him again. He called me up. He said, Rainer, how the, are you doing? Well, Frank, heavenly fine. He said, uh, you want to come talk to me about Jesus? I said, well, Frank, I hadn't heard from you in a quarter of a century, man. This would be great. He had found out that I was in Nashville because he went to a church in California and someone happened to quote something I had written in that church in California and he went up to that pastor and he said, how the do you know Rainer? <laughs> and the pastor responded, well, let me tell you how I know Rainer. He's a Presbyterian. He didn't care uh, how, how, how he responded back. I sat down with him. He said, let me tell you something. I'm dying. He said, I really want to listen this time. Share Jesus. It was a few weeks later, but Frank became a believer. Got to preach his funeral. Got to talk about how not everybody has the opportunity to hear again and again, but Frank did. And to many of his friends who were there, it was yet another gospel witness because our God is faithful. Ladies and gentlemen, the church of 2020 will look different 
than 2017. But some things will never change. Preach the word. Be men and women of prayer. Do the work of evangelists. And love your people as much as in Christ's power that you can, even as Christ loved the church. And then, and only then, will you truly be successful in ministry. Lord, thank you that we get to read your word and we get to know how it applies to our lives today, now, and that you give us a peek into the future because you have written an indelible ink in the past. We hear your word, Lord. Now, may we respond obediently, with enthusiasm, and with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.